Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trek through Major League Baseball history as we speak to some of the greatest players of all time and others whose stories found them in the middle of some of the game's greatest teams, seasons, and moments. Thanks for finding us and making Hardball part of your podcast world. And if you enjoy what you hear today, hope you go back and listen to some previous episodes. Tell some friends about us. If you're on social media, on a baseball Facebook page or two, or just a friendly tweet, it's appreciated. And if you have a minute, please rate and review on Apple, as that will also help other baseball fans find us. If you're new to what we're doing here and where Hardball sprung up from, here's the Reader's Digest version. These are conversations that date back as far as 20 years, and now include new sit-downs with people such as today's guest. I say as often as possible, I've never thought of these as interviews or Q&As or depositions. I've always thought of the time spent with these men as a chance to fill in the blanks of their lives, their careers, and asking them, and in turn, they hopefully ask me to pull up a chair to perhaps make a new baseball friend. I just look back at the list of the first 25 episodes. 17 Hall of Famers and the others all hold incredible places, both personally and collectively, in the game's history. And while some of these stories have been told by old-school newspaper men and Hall of Fame broadcasters and writers, I've always found that for the most part, these men and their ability to tell their own story and even more enthusiastically tell the stories of their teammates will bring out some that have never been told previously. The wins and the losses and insight as to what they meant as the years have gone by. Which brings us to today's guest, Peter Edward Rose, Charlie Hustle, The Hit King, and more. An episode a while in the making. There's a history with Pete and I and includes being shut out by Pete's people for years because they said I wasn't a Pete guy. That's code for having told Pete that I knew he bet on baseball in a previous interview and told him why I didn't guess that but knew it. Gamblers bet on things they know. They try to gain every advantage by attempting to learn everything they can about where they are putting their money. So I told Pete that if you're betting on football, or my God, horses and dogs, he would have had to have been the dumbest gambler in the history of the world if he didn't bet on baseball. He then told me he would prove to me he didn't. Well, here's where we stand this many years later. 20 years later, and we had a chance to sit down and talk about his career. That conversation, the conversation that hadn't been heard often enough, the baseball conversation, Pete Rose the player, his roots, his father's influence on him as a player, the idea that he didn't have much ability but worked his way to greatness, all-time greatness, how much of that was true. We will mention some of his troubles, but I promise this isn't that. This is the Reds, the World Series, All-Star Games, hitting streaks, teammates, and ultimately how he views his career today. Moment of truth. I spoke to Pete at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon 
and set this up for 7 o'clock that night, and I put it at about 40% that he would pick up. And if he did, give me the time that might take to do this right. Not only did he pick up, but two hours later we were saying goodnight. He has thoughts on today's game and his place in its history. And while you can say many things about Pete, here's one thing that sets him apart from some others that the Hall of Fame voters have turned their backs on. Pete's numbers are real. How he played and why he played that way are real. This is part one. More to come. Hope you enjoy it and would love to hear back from you on this and other episodes. Thanks in advance. Here's Pete Rose. And right into the stretch. Looking back and throws up the middle. Rose and he ties Sam Musial. Number 3,630. Back to Rose. Bounce into the hole. There it is. 104 games and you're playing a team that won 79 in a best of three now i know what you're going to say you're supposed to beat them but but in a best of three if if i've won 104 and i find myself playing some slappy team that's got 79 wins i gotta i gotta i gotta wet the bed with worry every night before that series actually gets started well it's the same thing as a wild card team going to the super bowl because they had to win a couple games on the road to Mm -hmm. get there I mean, but you're you're absolutely correct. In a three-game series, I mean, even though you got good pitching, mm-hmm. your star pitcher could have a bad game yep. in game one. Then you got to win two in a row. I mean, that's when I used to play in the playoffs all the time. Okay, uh, we used to have a five-game playoff. It was three out of five, and that's a lot of pressure compared to a four out of seven, mm-hmm. which we played in the World Series. Because if you lose one game one in that playoff. Okay, you got to win three out of four. And when you're playing a team that's equivalent to you as far as the standings are concerned, mm-hmm. in the playoffs, you know you got good pitching. It's hard to sweep a team three out of four or win three out of four. And when you know you have to do that, you're, you've got pressure on you. There's no question about this. You know, I always thought that the only pressure in baseball, it's not every day playing, it's not hitting streaks, it's not this, it's not that. It's the playoffs. That's what the, that's where the pressure is the playoffs, because especially in a three out of game, three out of five playoffs, you got to win. You got to win. You got to win early. You know, a World Series, you want to win it. I've, I've been to six of them. You want to win the World Series. I won three of them, but you know, there's really no loser in the World Series. I mean, you want to win, sure you do, but there's only two teams in all the world you get to play in the World Series. And that's that, that's something I always really liked. I wanted to win every game I played, 
But if you lose the World Series, you don't go home and cry for a week. So I was going to save this for later, but it's really interesting because to me, you played in arguably the greatest game ever, Game 6 in 1975. And I, you know, for people who don't know, you had one constant theme running through your mind that entire game and then even post-game. And I think if the story's correct, you might have said to Sparky how incredible that game was. And he probably looked at you like you were crazy because you guys lost. But explain to everybody what you were telling everybody. let Let me tell you exactly what happened. Okay. Sparky comes in and and he's mad because we blew the game. It was three to nothing, three to three, six to three, six to six, seven to six. Uh, Carlton hit the home run in the twelfth inning. Okay, uh, Sparky was there. He said, "Big red machine, my ass." Okay, <laughs> and I said, "Spark, did you see that celebration they just had right now? Did they forget they got to come back and play a game seven? Their their World Series was the game before when they won seven to six. And that took all the steam out of them. Although I must tell you, they had a three to nothing lead in the yeah. next game, game seven. Yeah. And let me let me tell you something that, that escaped everybody who watched that World Series. And I'm not trying to take any credit for anything, okay? But we got a man on. We we got a man on, and uh, somebody hit a double play ball. It was either Bench or Perez, one of the two. And I hit Denny Doyle, and I knocked him on his ass. He threw the ball in the in the Boston uh, dugout. Okay, we're down three nothing. Next batter up that had been the double play end of inning. The next batter up was Tony Perez. Bill Lee threw the Ephus pitch that Perez hit over the Jimmy Fund to make it three to two. Where if I don't break that double play up, it's three nothing in the fifth inning. But once we got the home run, we got all the confidence and momentum in the world and went on to win that game seven. That's that's how important, okay, for young listeners, listen to you and I talk right now, every pitch, every play can be in a baseball game. And by just the a, just, a, just yeah. a matter of breaking up a double play or getting a walk at a certain time, you know, just little things like that turn into victories. And And what I'll tell everybody else is, you were telling everybody what? Like, you, you couldn't believe that you had the, the pleasure, you had the honor to play uh, in that game. That's. That- hey, I, went, I went up to bat. I went up to bat the inning before and looked at Carlton Fisk because it was 6 6. And I said, Carlton, in this fun, we're playing in one of the best games in the history of baseball. And I must have relaxed him because he hit the home run the next inning to win the game. <laughs> And, and, but, that, but that's the way you look at it. Because let me tell you something. Uh, one thing I don't like in sports, and you don't either, okay? You don't want to see a, a, a Super Bowl be 48 to nothing. Right. You don't want a World Series like we did in 76 sweep the Yankees. Right. Because that's a showplace for your sport. You're right. You're okay? right. The, hey, the only, the only reason you want the Super Bowl to be 48 to nothing because you got the under and it's 49. That's exactly right. That's exactly. And by the way, as you were saying, I was like, yeah, there is one scenario where I'll take 48, nothing. Um, But, but here's the other thing. Here's why I think Pete Rose, the manager probably was at least in play when you were playing, you knowing that they had burned out that night as they're jumping up and down, you're thinking about the psyche of a player, which is basically what a yeah. manager is. I mean, you have to observe what the hell is going on in your own clubhouse, your dugout, what you see on the field. And if you're not thinking along those lines, 
something is going to go by you, and I don't think you're going – look, you needed to go to bed that night feeling good enough that, hey, man, we're winning game seven. We're winning it because we're just as good, but I'm watching what they're doing in that dugout. Yeah. We were a confident team because we were a bunch of all-stars and a bunch of Hall of Famers. Hell, I, I, I had a Hall of Famers, three Hall of Famers out of the first four players that hit, and I was the other guy. Plus, we had Griffey was a Hall of Famer. Geronimo was a Hall of Famer. Foster hit over 50 home runs in 77. He was a, a, a Griffey and, and Concepcion and Foster were perennial all-stars. So we had an all-star lineup, and, and we don't give up because we're even. Hell, we would play anybody a one-game deal for the championship. That's how confident. We weren't cocky, but we were confident. We were confident that we could win. And, you know, when you have a celebration like that, it takes all the yeah. adrenaline out of you. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. Although, like I said, they did come out to game seven and have a three-to-nothing lead, but you know, we we were still confident, even though we were down three to nothing, and that's what good teams do. And you know, in one bad of, teams will come back from that, right? In one of the greatest games ever, you also were a firsthand witness to one of the worst swings ever in a baseball game. That Bernie Carbo Bernie, moment, Bernie Carbo's oh. his swing before he, he hit the home run. <laughs> it was it was the worst swing you'd ever seen in your work. I bet you didn't know this, but you probably did because you you got pretty much on the ball here. Did you know Bernie Carbo was our first draft choice ahead of Johnny Bench? No. He got drafted the same year. Johnny was mm-hmm. second. Bernie Carbo was one. <laughs> so so baseball, the, the bedfellows. Bernie and- Carbo. Wait, wait, let me tell you. Bernie Carbo is one of two guys I ever played against and one guy I played with. Him and Rico Cardi. Remember Rico Cardi? I sure do. Okay, don't ask me why, but during the games, they both kept their billfold in their back pocket of the baseball uniform. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't trust. They must not have trusted somebody. Hey, I I don't know if Rico is not even going to get caught eating going from second to third. I, I got only, only two guys in the history I, of the game to have their billfold in their back pocket during the game. So I got to ask you about, and I'm assuming your father. Like I, I want to go back. Just I, I want to ask you about guys you played with and against and everything else in your career. But I'm assuming your father. I don't know if it was tough love. I don't know what the term might have been back then. But there had to be an instilling in you pretty early. And you gravitated towards it. You ran with it once it was maybe given to you that this is how you go about your business. If you don't attack this, you've just wasted everybody's time. Well, here's the advantage I hit, okay? Now, you got to remember, I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, okay? Mm -hmm. Your fans don't know this, but my father was probably the best football player ever come out of Cincinnati, okay? Great football player. I was the water boy. I was the ball boy on the baseball team. I was I, I was the bat boy on the baseball team, the ball boy on the basketball team. So my father was a great athlete, and he would, you know, I would always go to his games. I was always working for the team. So and I saw the way he played, and that's the way he instilled the, the way I should play. Mm-hmm. You know, my father never embarrassed me in front of my teammates. He always corrected me when I played, no matter what sport I was playing. If I made a mistake. He corrected me on the way home. That's why I was such a fundamentally sound player. It's just because of my dad. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a story. We got time, right? We got yeah. a lot of time. Yeah, hell yeah. Okay. I'm playing. I'm, it's 1970. My dad died at Pearl Harbor Day in 1970. 
I'm a batting champion in 68 and 69. So the reason I said that is because I become kind of a star in the league. Okay, it's 1970. We're playing a home game. I come out after the game. My dad never stayed after the game, although he went to every game. He was a banker. He had to get up in the morning and go to work. He's standing by my car, so right away I think my mom's sick because he never stayed after the game. I look at dad. Dad, is mom all right? He said, oh, no. He says, I got a question to ask you. He said, that third time up tonight, and you had a man on third, and you grounded out to second. He said, did you run hard to first? And I thought about it, and I didn't because I was pissed because I missed a pitch I should have hit. Okay? And I said, uh, well, uh, no, I didn't. He said, don't embarrass me in this town like that. Hmm. I taught you when you hit the ball, you run as hard as you can until the umpire says out or safe. I said, okay, Dad, don't worry about it. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, have a good night. And when you're getting scrutinized that closely at the big league level, now you have an idea why I played the way I played. Yeah. And two batting titles in your back pocket, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I said that because I, was, I wasn't a, a, a rookie player or right. something. You know, I was I was a leader of the team. I was, you know, I was a leader of the, of the Reds at that time. And and he just that's the way he looked at every game. He thought every game was important. And if you lose tonight, don't worry about it. Win tomorrow night. So okay? cl- clear you this up for me, don't though. Don't worry about don't worry about something that happened yesterday, last week, last month, or last year. Worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, because you're in control of it. That's the way you got to look at it because baseball is a game. It, it's the only game in the world where you fail seven out of ten times to go to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. I made nine thousand. <laughs> I made nine thousand eight hundred outs. <laughs> Think about that. More than anybody, but I got more hits than anybody. Yeah, that's I a mean, lot of so that's a lot of right hand turns. I mean, you think about it, 9,000 plus outs, it's it's a lot of, right? But I want to hear this out of your mouth now, because I think one of the other things that's been said is, uh, no doubt about it, in terms of the hustle, the work, uh, that base is mine, it's not yours, I'm going to come in hard, I expect you to do the same when I'm playing in the middle of, whatever it is, I get all that. How much natural ability did you have? Because I I think you might get, it's a great thing to be known as a guy who worked every ounce of his ability. But you must yeah. have been a player. I, I mean, this this notion that you were some one, slappy. One, one thing I did have, okay, that you need in baseball, uh, and need, you need the sports. I had great hand-eye coordination, okay? So I would I would say that uh, I had a, a little better in average speed, but I knew how to run. Mm-hmm. I had a little better in average ability in the outfield, but I knew how to play it, uh, uh, play the game, Okay. I didn't. I had an average arm, but I led the league in assists a couple of times. Okay, so it's how you play. You know, in, in in my case, every time I hit a single, I was thinking about a double. If I'm on first base and a guy hits a single, I'm thinking about going to third. I'm not thinking about stopping at second. Okay, so that's the way I applied the game. I was always thinking ahead of guys that were playing the game. Okay, because my job was get on first, and the faster I get on first, the faster I can get around and touch home plate. And whoever touches home plate the most that particular night wins the damn game. Of all the records of all the records I got, and I don't know, I got 26, 28 major league records. The best record I got is I played in 1900, 1972 winning games. That's 250 
more than the guy that's second in the history of the game. And that's really a credit to the great teammates I had and the great teams I was on. You know, I don't ever remember going to spring training. And I went to 24 of them as a player. I don't ever remember going where I didn't think I had a chance of going to the playoffs or, or the World Series. Now, you you know and I know. You can look at the teams playing today, okay? I mean, you think San Francisco thinks they can go to the World Series. You think Seattle thinks they can. You think Arizona thinks they can. You think Boston thinks they can. You think Detroit thinks they can. You think Pittsburgh thinks they can. I mean, you think Washington this year thinks they can. There's so many teams, Toronto. There's so many teams that they have no chance of getting to the next level. What happens then? Everybody starts playing for themselves, worried about what kind of numbers they can put up so they can get money next year. That's what the game's turned into. There's probably, oh, not probably, there's 30 teams in baseball. Okay? How many teams do you think realistically think they could win the World Series when this year started? Right. And, by the way, the sport has blended itself to the myth that everybody's 0-0, and by, this could be our year. And, but but it's interesting. So you know A.J. Ellis, longtime catcher in baseball, right? Yeah. He retired a few years ago. A.J. Ellis. He's yeah. the guy that put it yeah. best to me. Uh, I was sitting with him, and I've told this story before. I was sitting with him in a clubhouse, visiting clubhouse, doing some work before right. I had to do the pregame show. And he had seen me around for years, and we had built up a little bit of a relationship. And we were talking about the three outcomes, home run, strikeout, walk. And he said, Chris, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. This is how the game is different than even when I started as a minor leaguer. So it had been right. a number of years, but it wasn't two generations. He said it used to be that it was two swings for me, one for the team. He said, Chris, the game now is three swings for me. And he just said, I'm a catcher. I see it. He said, the game is played as a three swings for me. You don't even get the, the, the one swing for the team. And and this is a guy who had the vantage point of being behind the plate to know what guys were yeah. doing and not doing. So yeah. I just thought that was a fascinating way to put the idea. Choking up, nope, not going to happen. Uh, slapping a ball the other way, fouling off a foul ball, you know, a pitch you didn't like to get the next one. No, most well, guys were actually trying to, you know, jack it out of a park. That's a good philosophy on his part. But, but let me ask you a question. Who has created this monster we're watching? The owners have. Why? Because the owners have convinced the players – that if you hit 25 to 35 home runs, I don't give a darn if you strike out 200 times, you're going to make 15 to 18 million. Am I right? Yeah. And and think about the strikeout. They don't give a darn. When's the last time you saw a guy lead off the inning with a double and then next guy up shoot a ground ball right. to second? You don't see it anymore because he'd rather knock in two runs. Well, Hank. There's not, a, there's not enough teams today to worry or think about winning. They're all playing for themselves. Well, there's an, so Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron said that if he would have struck out a hundred times in a season, he wouldn't have come out all winter. That's that's his quote to me. I would not have come oh, out one got, day all winter. Got sent back to the minors. <laughs> when he got sent back to the minors, strike out a hundred times. I mean, back when I played, Ray Charles would have struck out a hundred times. So here's the other part of you as a young player. How long before you develop your pregame ritual, including what you needed to do and be paid? Now, look, I'm going to say this about you. You said that you didn't have a great arm, but you led the league in assists. 
That means yeah. that you were concerned with your footwork and how you actually released. As third baseman, if you don't have the biggest arm in the world, you got to work on getting the ball out of your glove cleanly and quickly. So I know all the things you had to do playing all those other positions. You were a natural player, but you took your ability to another level and the way you do it in the outfield. Make sure your position right. I knew I, I knew I had to change positions in order to play. I always change positions to give someone else a chance to play. And when I played the outfield, the reason I had so many assists because I was super aggressive. Mm-hmm. I didn't lay back on anything. Or if I played third base, I, I played it really aggressively. That's the way you have to play the game. Whether you have shortcomings or whether you're the best player in the world. Mike Trout's one. He's probably the best player in baseball. But he plays aggressively still. That's what makes him so di- so difficult to stop. But knowing who the you are as a player is important. Like Trout, the only thing I don't like about Mike Trout and I've seen Aaron, I've seen Mays, I've seen, you know, Clemente, I've seen a lot of great players. And those great players, they seem to get their team over the hump, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Trout can't get that team over the hump. Hell, they're, they're 10 or 11 games under 500, as you and I talk right now. And they, they traded for Randon. He's one of the best players in baseball. Pujols can still knock in runs. That guy's a hitting machine. And you got Trout. I mean, usually a team with stars like that are, are going to win more games than they're going to lose. Well, it also, I guess it's down to the pitching staff. Yeah, it goes back to what you say, though, the ability to know how to win. But you also have to know your limitations, and you also have to know your strengths as a player. I, I think, look, sure. I, I say it all the time. Players are the first ones to know when they're not going well. Like, it's not a fan in a call-in show telling a player, hey, what about that guy can't. Players know before anybody else does. And, and knowing how to get out of that, knowing how to be a pro and not have the three-game rough stretch turn into five games if you don't if you're not honest with yourself as a player i think you're putting up a wall that's really really hard to get over well i tell people this all the time okay everybody around you and me right now everybody has expertise we all could do something other people can't do if you're a baseball player and you've got expertise in hitting hit try to hit consistently if you're a fielder field if you're a runner runner if you're a pitcher pitch if you're a short reliever relief if you're a long reliever long relief there's things you can do don't get out of your element okay you don't send a guy who weighs 290 pounds in a can't run in to pinch run you, you don't put a guy that can't his way out of the bag up to pinch hit you don't bring a guy in that gives up a lot of long balls to save a game everybody had to, that's why you have 25 players that's why you have a batting order some guys can't hit first, second, third, fourth, or fifth. Other guys need to hit eighth. They need to hit ninth. They need to be a pinch hitter. They can't start. They can't play every day. They can't handle it. And when you're a manager, you got to know, because when I was a manager of the, of the Reds, and all you try to do, all you try to do is put players in situations where they'll thrive on. If you put players in situations where they'll fail, They'll fail. Believe me, they'll fail. If you keep them out of those situations and you got players for every situation, okay, and every once in a while you use a lot of players, you may run out of situational players, but you try to keep players where they belong, where they belong. And if you do that, you're going to win more games than the opposition. Does well, that make any sense? Yeah, and when you work players right, when you psychologically and physically work them right, yes. here's what I know they're going to do. They'll run through a wall for you because they know yes. that you have their best interest at heart. Right. 
Because you pinch hit for a player, don't, it doesn't mean you don't like him. It doesn't mean he can't do this or can't do that. It just seems that you think this guy as a pinch hitter has a better, uh, better situation to win the game. And most managers, if not all managers, their number one goal every night is to win the damn game. That's the only reason you play a game is to win it. You don't play it for exercise, okay? And how about these managers that have no chance of getting to the next level? You know how hard their job is? How hard it is to go to the clubhouse today? You know, it, it, let's say a regular season, and it's September 1st, you got a whole month to go, and you're, and you're 32 games out of first place. You know how hard it is to go to the clubhouse? I don't give a damn how much money you're making, okay? Because it's hard for your fans to go to the game. It's hard for the players to play the game. Hell, most players are on bad teams in September. They'd rather play on the road. They'd rather, they'd rather play on the road against good teams because the good teams got fan support. Energy. Yeah, and there's yeah, energy. The don't have the bad teams. Are, well, now the school started. Now they're, they're drawing 12,000, 13,000 yeah. a game instead of 25 or 28,000. So, okay? So that's let- the situation don't want to be in. Yeah, let me go back to, though, your pregame ritual and what you needed to do in BP. How long, how many years did it take you to figure out how it was going to work? Forget about a ritual. I, I don't believe in rituals. You know, when I got to the big leagues, I took batting practice the same way as I did in the minor leagues. I'm in a group. I get in when it's my group's time, probably four guys. Okay? I hit the ball wherever it's pitched. I try to hit it as hard as I can, not as far. Oh, the only time you try to hit home runs when the last the last minute or two minutes of batting press where you're taking one swing and trying to play a long ball. But you got to work on hitting when you're in batting practice. You know, you can't work on hitting in the clubhouse. You can't work uh, before the game once batting practice is over. Batting practice is to get loose. Batting practice is for confidence. And every player, just like when I broke the record, 4192. I knew I was going to get hit the first time up. I had such a good batting practice that night. Everything I swung at was right on the right on the nose, right on the nose. And it took me two or three pitches to break the record. I just I, because batting practice is for confidence, okay. And if you don't hit in batting practice, how the hell are you going to hit in the game? Yeah, because it's straight and seventy-two miles an hour. Yes, yes. And if it's not, you get a new batting practice pitcher. <laughs> yeah, if you start to make guys look bad, get them the hell out of there because the lack of, lack of confidence will show quickly. Uh, so well, there's people, so we were lucky. The big red machine was lucky. I tell you why, because and, and here, here again, you know, I was a switch batter, okay, and I never I never hit off a right hand pitcher in batting practice. So if a right hand pitcher was pitching that night, I took batting practice left handed, and if a left hand pitcher was uh, pitching that night against us, I hit off a left-hand batting practice pitcher, and we were lucky because our radio announcer was a former 20-year player in the big leagues, Joe Nuxall. Mm-hmm. So we had a left-handed batting practice pitcher that was a pitcher and <laughs> threw strikes and knew how to get us ready. I didn't. If, if I had a, a, a right-hander pitching that night, I didn't. I didn't bat right-handed in batting practice. You know, I, I, two times in my career. I hit left-handed off of a left-hand pitcher, Jim Brewer and Randy Jones. I never in my life hit right-handed off a right-hand pitcher. Matter of fact, I can't even go back to Little League remember remembering hitting right-handed off a right-hand pitcher because I started to switch bat when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. So why those two dad, guys? My what? dad told the coach. My dad told the coach, 
I want this boy to be a left-hand hitter against right-hand pitching. And my promise to you is he'll never miss a practice, he'll never be late to a practice, and he'll never miss a game. You know how literally baseball, you come down to championship season, championship week, and the rich kids, mom and dad, went on vacation. So he missed the game. My dad didn't believe in that. His obligation was to have me be on the field for that coach no matter what the situation was. And no matter what the situation was, I was batting left-handed off of right-hander and right-handed off of the left-hander. When you're 22 and they they take you up after spring training, is it easy or did you take a veteran's job, which has been a long time thing in baseball, where some of the veterans, there might be that moment of, uh, one of our buddies is now gone. This kid better be able to play. Oh, I went through that. I went through yeah. that. I'll tell you why. Because in 1961, the Reds went to the World Series against the Yankees, and they had a second baseman named Don Blasio. Okay. And he, he hit 280 or something like that. Okay, now it's 62, and he didn't do as well. Now it's 63, and I'm coming off of two straight 330 years in Macon and in uh, Tampa, Florida, and Fred Hutchinson liked me. He, he liked I'll tell, tell you, the cat out of the bag came in St. Petersburg in the Winter League, Instructional League. He, you know, the manager, Fred Hutchinson, came to a couple Instructional League games, and I got like two or three hits in each game. And he told a reporter afterwards, he said, if I had any balls at all, I'd put that kid at second base next year. So I went to spring training as a non-rostered player, okay? And I had a great spring training. And he thought I could do more things than Don Blassett game. However, okay, and I'm not, uh, I'm not talking bad about these guys. Johnny Edwards, Eddie Casco, okay, Gordy Coleman. Guys like that all were real close to Don Blassingame. Now, all of a sudden, this brash young kid from Cincinnati is starting at second base. And they, they kind of resented me, but the only two guys that really liked me were Veda Pinson and Frank Robinson because they saw something that the white guys couldn't see or didn't want to see. Okay? Then I, then I got off to a decent start. Well, I didn't. I went 0 for 12, my first 12 at-bats. Then I won rookie of the year. Uh, and then the second year, I had a so-so year. Then that's why I went to Venezuela after the 64 season to play winter ball. And I hit 340 and led the league in run scored. So when I come back for the 65 season, what, I hit 300 the next 12 or 14 years, something like that, because I went to Venezuela to learn how to hit. But I was always trying to impress my teammates, if you believe that. But that's the way I didn't give a damn. I didn't give a damn. I played hard. I played harder and harder and harder. I still ran the first on the base on balls. I still still sweat head head first in the third, head first in the second. I still knocked catchers over if they were blocking the plate. Played within the rules, but I played hard. And I don't know if I embarrassed some players the way I played, okay? But I probably did. Because how did I play? I'll tell you how I played. I played the right way. I play the way everybody should play. That's my philosophy. Pete Rose played the game the way every player who plays the game should play the game. All out, two and a half hours a day, seven days a week. That's the way you should play the game. That's what you owe to the fans. That's what you owe to your teammates. That's what you owe to your team. That's what you owe to your fans. And if you don't, you're cheating the game. And if you cheat the game, you're cheating yourself. 
So how do you reconcile the idea that the what you the way you played on the field? Do you think some guys, when you got in trouble with the commissioner with the gambling stuff, yeah. do you think some yeah. guys reveled in that? Do you think some guys were like played the card of good, didn't like them? No, probably, probably, but not nobody I played with, and not many guys I played against. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. I made a mistake, big deal. Okay, I paid the consequences. I didn't hurt you when I bet on my team to win. Did I hurt you? I don't think I did. Did I hurt the guy sitting next to you? I don't think I did. Okay? I had that much confidence in my players, my young players. I wanted to bet on them every night because I thought they'd win every night. You know, I was absolutely wrong. I was absolutely wrong, and I apologize. But if you think about it, every manager should bet on his team every night (laughs) because he's going to do everything in the damn world to win the game. And maybe I shouldn't say that. But, uh, you know, I was wrong and I broke the rules and I paid the consequences. So let's go to the next step. So players who played with me, uh, I never had a player say a bad thing about me. It would be hard to unless I beat you out because all I did is play the game hard. All I did is play the game to win. And I just told you how many wins I played on, how many World Series I went to, how many All-Star games I went to, 17. I mean – I wasn't. I wasn't any kind of ass, you know. I I took care of young players. You can ask any young player that came up through the Reds after I did. I took care of them because I didn't want them to go through what I went through. Okay, young players are intimidated when they first get to the big leagues. Even today, it's tough being a rookie in baseball. It's tough being a rookie in football, in basketball, and your veteran players got to. They got. I remember the first All Star game I made. Okay, in Minnesota in 1965. I get to the clubhouse the day before for the workout. I'm lockering between Mays and Aaron. I'm saying, what the hell am I doing here? You hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Henry, Aaron, and Willie Mays. And that's why I love those guys. Because those guys went out of their way to treat me like I was one of the guys. They didn't treat me like I was a young rookie, brash young rookie. They treated me like I belong on that team, and they made me feel as, as comfortable as we could. And all they talked about is winning the game. And I played 17 All-Star games, and they were teammates in a lot of those games. And how many we went out of 17? 16. That's how many All-Star games the National League won. 16 out of 17. The only one we lost was 1971 in Detroit when Reggie hit the ball off of Doc Ellis. Last but not least, our next honoree inspired fans in Cincinnati and across the country is all-out style of play and hustle. A three-time batting champion provided fans with one of the most iconic moments in baseball history when he collected hit number 4192 right here in his hometown from Western Hills High School in Cincinnati. Please welcome Pete Rose. I don't know if it was not home baseball or what it was, but if you think about Oster, Larkin, Buddy Bell, Dave Parker, Billy Doran, all the guys from Cincinnati, and I'm probably going to leave some out. We all played the same way. We all played the same way. We all played hard nose. We all played to win. I think not hold baseball and still does in us when we were kids. 
God love not home baseball. One more hour and I'll be home. Close my eyes and rest my bones. Can't be more than a mile or so from Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I wasn't diving for me. I was diving for you. I was hitting for you. I was trying to score runs for you. Because I, I till this day, and I really believe this, baseball capital of the world is a queen city. We love chili. We love pizza. We love ice cream. We love ribs. And we all love the Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati.